Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, you can follow us on social media, at Faith on Hill, both Facebook and Instagram. Uh, the videos are available on our website, faithonhill.com, and on our Facebook page. The audio versions are available on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, you don't have to uh, do anything, but if you would subscribe to those, that'd be awesome. You'll find all of our podcast content there. And uh, if you're on Facebook, giving us a like or a share would be awesome as well. We're going to be back in the book of Revelation this morning. We are in Revelation chapter 4. The fourth chapter of Revelation says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John has finished receiving from Jesus his messages to those seven churches that we talked about over a couple weeks. And now Jesus wants to show him something new. How do we know it's Jesus? It doesn't say specifically that it's Jesus, but he says it's the voice that I heard at first, which we found out in chapter one was the voice of Jesus. And Jesus says, come up here, I will show you something. If Jesus wants to show us something, it's a good idea to listen. This has been one of my main points, my main uh, assertions when it comes to the book of the Revelation is that it's the revelation from and of Jesus. And if he wants to show us things, we need to have the courage to follow where he leads. So he wants to show him things that must take place. Now, as we said in week one, is it possible that this was written around 60 AD and Jesus is showing John things that must take place in 70 AD? when Jerusalem is destroyed, when the temple is destroyed, when the Romans overrun the nation of Israel. It's possible. But you know what? I was preparing uh, this morning for um, next Sunday and, and preparing for the Palm Sunday message. And one of the things that I noticed as I was reading in the words of the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 9 of the prophet Zechariah, and it's, it's where we get the prophecy of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, which Jesus did on that Palm Sunday. What's interesting to me is how much of Jesus' second coming, not his first, his second coming is talked about in Zechariah chapter 9. And what I'm saying is this, the pattern that we see throughout the Bible, and specifically in biblical prophecy, is that there is a first and a second, a partial and a full fulfillment 
of prophecy, generally speaking. So even if Jesus is talking about things that will be fulfilled in just a few years with the destruction of the temple, if we are consistent in how we approach the Bible, and we should be consistent, if we are consistent, then it would not be out of line to say that he was giving him first and second, partial and full, and the same prophecy. Whatever it is, these are things that have not yet taken place, I'm going to say, even in our day. These are things still future. John says, I at once was in the Spirit, and there before me was the throne in heaven with somebody sitting on it. I was in the Spirit. The implication here is that this is a new work of the Holy Spirit. Revelation chapter 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He says the Holy Spirit came upon him on likely a Sunday morning as he was praying and worshiping on his exile, desert island in the middle of nowhere in the Mediterranean. And the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he saw the vision of Jesus walking among the church, holding the church in his hands. And then he received the the word from Jesus to these seven churches. And now there is a new, fresh work of the Holy Spirit. Can I make a suggestion? I believe this. I believe that the Holy Spirit, and I think this is borne out biblically, but the Holy Spirit equally God with God the Father and God the Son, that God the Holy Spirit works in people's lives in three ways, three specific ways. The first, that the Holy Spirit is with people, convicting us of the truth. The Holy Spirit calls out to humanity, consider Jesus. The Holy Spirit makes the way. It's this big theological term called prevenient grace. It means that God pre-intervenes and allows those of us, all of us, who are dead in our sins. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 8 that no one is able to please God. We are dead in our sins. We are only able to seek after sinful things. But the Holy Spirit, he prevenes, he intercedes and gives us the choice to say yes or no to Jesus. So that the apostle Peter in the first gospel message ever preached, Acts chapter 2, says, choose Jesus. Make a choice. Cross the line. The Holy Spirit is with all humanity. And then every person who has a saving faith, the Holy Spirit of God is in them. The Bible says that the Spirit baptizes us into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we are baptized in water, we are symbolically expressing publicly the spiritual work that God the Spirit has already done. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon believers. Acts chapter 2, the original believers, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then when Peter preached the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the Holy Spirit came upon those in Cornelius's house who believed. The Bible talks about the apostles after they had been filled with the Spirit 
on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Bible says throughout the book of Acts, then they were filled with the Spirit. It was fresh, just as John had the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Just as John was overcome with the Spirit in Revelation chapter 1, and now in Revelation chapter 4, once again, the Spirit comes upon him. This is my suggestion. Every person in the world and every person listening to my voice right now, the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to our hearts the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, our need for him. Every person who has a saving faith, the Holy Spirit is in you. The Bible says that we died and our lives are now hidden in God through Christ. And that work is done by the Holy Spirit. This is my final suggestion for all believers. The Holy Spirit comes upon us in power. And I, I think we see this in the scripture and we see this in human experience. That there are key moments where we are first baptized with the Holy Spirit. And both biblically and experientially... And if you have questions about what I mean by that, I'm happy to talk about them. But what I mean is biblically what we see in the Bible, specifically the book of Acts, and experientially what we see in human history, church history, and in our own lived experience. The Holy Spirit comes upon somebody in power and something changed. Somebody has a, an experience of faith. They believe and then they're figuring everything out, and then something seems to click, and their faith goes from, you know, there to supercharged. But then, also biblically and experientially, we see that people continually need the Holy Spirit. John, the apostle, received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 came upon him again in Revelation chapter 1. And now there is a new work that Jesus wants to do. He wants to show him things yet to come. And it happens through the Holy Spirit. Do you need faith? Do you need healing? Do you need holiness? Do you need power? Do you need strength? We all need a fresh work of God's Holy Spirit. Here's the good news. Jesus knows what we need. Jesus knew what John needed in that moment, and he came upon him with the strength to accomplish the task. Jesus hears our prayers. Have you asked? The Bible says in the book of James that many believers don't have something because they haven't bothered to ask God for it. I'm not saying that God's going to give you everything you want, but have you asked God for the things that you need? The Holy Spirit is something that we need. The Holy Spirit is part of our faith that is vital. As the Holy Spirit works in John, it says he sees the throne in heaven. Now, heaven is a tricky concept biblically. We're going to find out at the end of the book of the Revelation that Heaven can mean several things. There is a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. What most people think of heaven, eternity, is actually a new creation, a new earth. It's not some floating city in the clouds. It's a real place. The heavens speak often of, of the sky, the things beyond us, and can refer to where the presence of God dwells. 
And in this case, I think that's what we're talking about. The, the, the center of where God's presence dwells. It says, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Some of your uh, Bible translation, translations might say jasper and carnelian. It says that a rainbow shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Now, we used to say something like this. A lot of ink has been spilled. Now, obviously, I, I don't, you know, rarely use ink to write. Mostly when I write anything, it's with a keyboard, it's typing. That is mostly where things happen. But it used to be that you'd have to dip a quill in ink and write. Get a pen and write, and ink would be used. And so that saying came, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled. A lot of writing has happened. A lot of people have pontificated or expressed opinions or gone back and forth in debate over the meaning of Jasper and Carnelian, over the meaning of the rainbow and the emerald. And I think that misses the point. And it gives us a fresh reminder that as people debate about things that we're not clear about, we miss the bigger picture. Is Jasper and Carnelian speaking of diamonds and rubies? Is it speaking of Jasper stone and ruby? There's literally papers and, and you know, academic scholarship that's been devoted to this debate. The rainbow with an emerald, what's going on? Because a rainbow isn't a rainbow if it's one color, but yet there's this emerald rainbow. What is happening? It misses the point. The one who was there is radiating beauty, is radiating light. There is power, rainbow. The book of Genesis, the rainbow was the sign of a covenant. So here we see a symbol of covenant over the throne. We are covenant people. We who are Christians, God has made a covenant with us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that we live in that agreement. We believe in faith, and Jesus' work is sufficient. John says, I see the one on the throne. And instead of arguing over rubies and, and rainbows, let's focus on the power of the one who is on the throne. Now it says in verse 4, surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. More ink has been spilled about who these 24 elders are. 12 tribes of Israel. Disciples. Is it literally Reuben and Simeon and Judah is it literally Thomas and Matthew and Peter and James and John? Is Paul one of the twelve or is Matthias? So much time has been spent debating who these people are. I did read an interesting commentary from uh, Dr. Morris, Leon Morris, who's an uh, Anglican uh, scholar. Uh, and I appreciate his takes. We don't agree on everything. Uh, he, he was uh, quoting uh, Dr. Shields, uh, who was arguing that they're not actually people, that they are angelic representatives of the covenant people. In the same way that in Revelation 1 and in 2 and 3, it's possible that when Jesus says the angels of the church, 
that, that each church has a representative angel. And so it's possible that there are angelic beings representing the covenant peoples. I don't really want to argue about it because the more important thing isn't who they are, it is what they do. And it's who they're standing next to. I love weddings. We just got invited to a wedding yesterday, and I'm excited for, to go to, to this wedding this summer. You know, one of the things that I have found, and I have been the officiant at, at several weddings, and one of the things I have found is when you are the officiant at a wedding, you're front and center. Everyone can see you. You stand in a very prominent place. And no one cares. No one cares. I mean, if you had a, I don't know, if I had something in my beard, I think people would notice and comment. But, but generally speaking, no one cares. No one cares because they are looking at the groom and more so usually at the bride. They are looking at the couple. That is who takes the focus. And if we want to argue about jasper and rubies, about rainbows, about elders, and who is sitting on these lesser thrones, it would be foolishness because the one who sits on the primary throne will grab all attention. What is it that these elders do? Well, it says in verse 10, that the 24 elders fall down and worship him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and hour ever, and they lay their crowns down. Think about this. If they are people, either representative people or literally the 12 apostles and the 12 uh, patriarchs from the Old Testament, let's say they're people, and they sit there at the pinnacle of human experience, Think about this, the pinnacle of human experience. They sit there before all others in the kingdom of heaven, before the throne, and they themselves are enthroned. They themselves wear crowns. Ooh, I want that. But what do they do? They put their crowns down. They humble themselves because the one who sits on the throne is worthy what they say in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. They don't stand there receiving glory. They don't stand there receiving attention. They give it away. People have these arguments about what something means in the book of the Revelation. And you know what? If Jesus comes along or somebody else in the book comes along and says, this is what it means. We want you to know what it means. That's good and it's important but we miss the point when anything becomes a distraction from Jesus. When things in the church take prominence and precedence over the gospel, that's not a good thing. In fact, it's the opposite of what we see here in the throne room of heaven. It says that in Verse 5, from the throne, not around the throne, but from it, came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lampstands were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. 
Now, many of your Bibles will have a footnote that says it could be translated the sevenfold spirit of God. And what that idea of seven or sevenfold would have meant to John's audience, and remember at this point, whether Revelation was written in 60 AD or 90 AD, the church was still incredibly influenced by Jewish thinking, philosophy, and biblical understanding. And seven is a complete number. It's a complete cycle. It's, it's a full, some would say perfect. It's representative of perfection. So what John is trying to get across as best as we understand, and this is generally agreed upon by scholars of many, if not most, Christian traditions, is that what John is trying to say here is that the full and perfect spirit is represented. You see the power of the throne, God the Father. You see the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Next Next time we're in, when we're in Revelation chapter 5, spoiler alert, you'll see Jesus. Verse 6, also in front of the throne, there was, there were, what was, uh, sorry, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now, it could be that what John was seeing was something separating the throne from the 24 elders and from everyone else that we are going to see when we get to Revelation chapter 5 that is present in this scene. And it could be that this separation, he's trying to figure out what it was, and he just said it looked like the calmest sea that you have ever seen. John was somebody who spent his early life on the water a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. And then he started following Jesus and he began to travel and he went to the Mediterranean and he spent time at Caesarea Philippi, which was a, a coastal town. He would have seen both large inland lake and the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. And he says, imagine the calmest sea you've ever seen where the water is crystal clear because nothing is turned up. That's the best I can describe it as. Some see the comparison to the tabernacle and later the temple, there was what was called the sea. And it was this large basin where the priests could wash ceremonially to clean themselves after doing the sacrifices. It could be that the, the basin, the sea, in the temple and the tabernacle was representative of this, whatever it is, in the, uh, the throne area of heaven. It could be that there's a, a representation of cleansing here, possible. It says, in the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. There were four living creatures. These things are so strange, so out of human experience, so hard to fathom, they had no words for it. And John just says they were alive and they were creatures. And they had eyes front and back. If you Google search 
biblically accurate descriptions of an angel. You'll see different artistic representations of these living creatures. You know, the angels, everybody draws these like really sweet, angelic, cherubic kind of drawings, and they're glowing with light, and they look very beautiful and friendly. And then you Google biblically accurate drawings of angels, and uh, you'll find descriptions like this, and you go, oh my gosh, that is terrifying. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had wings, six wings covered with eyes all around it. And even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Weird. Weird. There's no other way around this. Does this mean that there were literally a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle? Literally? No. John says they are like that. Now, if you are a student of church history or tradition, you might know that over the years, people tried to link these four living creatures to the four Gospels. That could be. I don't have a clear um, place to base that on. And I've always thought that the opinions about which four of the four living creatures linked to which of the four Gospels was subjective. I'm not interested in arguing with anyone over that. I just think it's one of those things that you can kind of go, maybe, but it misses the point. Here are four of the most amazing things you could ever hear described. Here are four things that have no context. I mean, look, I don't have like a doctorate in, in ancient mythology I don't have, like, I don't claim to be an expert in, in ancient legend, but I'm not poorly read. Uh, my, my boys really like those Percy Jackson books. And uh, so they'll start talking to me about Greek mythology, and then I'll be like, oh, yeah, it's that. And they're kind of like, how do you know about that? Because they know I haven't read the books. And it's like, well, because I'm not, I'm well read. I know about Greek mythology, I know about ancient uh, Near Eastern mythology in general because of biblical studies. I don't know of anything that comes close to what is being described. You know, there are always people trying to say, this part of the Bible is just ripping off this ancient mythology. And most of the time, it's like, there's no basis for it. It's, it's hogwash. Codswallop, another silly word you could use to describe it. This is something totally unique. And you can focus on what it means or what's happening, but what are they doing? It says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And when is that? Well, we were told, day and night, they never stop. It says that the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by you, they were created and have their being. Endless worship. Now, one of the key things to anyone who grew up in the church and who paid attention is this concern. Heaven is just endless church. 
and maybe not even the part of church that I like. Heaven is endless singing part of church. I have heard this from, from various people, especially people who grew up in the church, who paid attention and now are not part of the church. Especially comedians. P- comedians get this. They, they pay attention and then there's a surprising amount of very successful stand-up comedians who grew up in the church and, and a very diverse group. Nate Bargatze, who I, I think is very funny uh, and, and is one of the, the bigger comedians working right now. Uh, Trevor Noah, who just quit The Daily Show. Taylor Tomlinson, of course, Jim Gaffigan. Uh, there are people who grew up in church, paid attention, are aware, and then when they talk about heaven in a, in a comedy bit, they'll say, if you actually read it, it's just endless church. It's just people never stop singing songs. And that to them, that sounds horrible because they want it out. Now, I'm not trying to knock anybody. I'm a fan of stand-up comedy. But what I'm saying is this. This is a concern that some have. Heaven will be lesser than what we have right now. I like this world, and will the world to come be better? And then we read this, and we say, oh my goodness, endless church. Let me say this. I I will say that there have been moments in my life where I have experienced the presence of God in a unique and powerful way during a time of corporate worship in a church setting. And I have never wanted it to end. But the reality is that my mortal body needs to sleep. That my humanity needs to eat, that my humanity can't stand the presence of God. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. Moses was the leader of the people of Israel. He's the guy that, you know, took him out of Egypt. If you ever saw Prince of Egypt, right? He is that guy. And he said, God, I want to see your presence. And God says, Moses, you can't stand my presence. I'm going to cover you, and as my presence passes by, after I've passed by, then I'll uncover you, and you'll see just the after effects of it. That's the most that you can stand. If heaven is just an endless worship service, and in our new bodies, our resurrected bodies, that Jesus kind of gives us glimpses of when you read the Gospels in the book of Acts and you see what Jesus is like post-resurrection. If that is the case and we are able to withstand endless worship in the powerful presence of God, it will be better than anything that you or I have experienced on this life. If that's the case. Yet, As we read through the book of the Revelation, as you read other prophecies concerning eternity, especially in the book of Ezekiel, that is not what we see. Worship is part of life, absolutely. Human beings have a need to worship something. But we will have purpose and place. The the new heaven and the new earth is a real place. It's, It's not just some like vague you know, ethereal existence. It's a real place. And it will be infinitely better 
than the suffering that we know, than the pain that we've experienced, than the doubt, the hurt, the heartache, the injustice that we know, and even the best moments of ecstasy, the moments of pure joy, the moments of beauty that we experience in this world will pale in comparison to what is to come. And when we receive and experience the work of the Holy Spirit that we talked about at the beginning of this chapter, we have a glimpse of what is to come. Now, what is the Holy Spirit? How does that look like? What does that mean in my life? I'm not you. I don't know. It will look different for different people. I know people who have obviously, and you just see it in their life, experienced the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And it was nothing like a Pentecostal or charismatic experience. And I know people who are incredibly sedate, kind of buttoned up, very Presbyterian, if you will. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the next thing you know, they are standing up and prophesying as if they are some kind of charismatic Pentecostal. I can't tell you what the Holy Spirit looks like in your life. But I can tell you that looking around this world right now, we need faith. We need hope. We need love. And we receive that work from God the Holy Spirit. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive power and honor and glory. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Friends, there is no greater need than to have our being rooted in something. Right now, everyone's looking for identity. Right now, everything is about identity. Our personal identity, what we express or identify as, our political identity, identity politics, uh, everything is about branding, everything is about tribalism, everything is about polarization, everything is about identity. And to reject this world is to have our identity rooted in Jesus Christ. It's no longer Adam who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That's the hope of glory. And as the Holy Spirit fills us, as the Holy Spirit moves in us, as the Holy Spirit does his work in the lives of people, then we see he who sits on the throne. We see his power. We see our need for him. We see his worth. We see our purpose. We see our identity. You say, I don't know if I've ever experienced that. Friends, the first question to ask is, am I a believer? Do I have a saving faith in Jesus? If you don't know, then this is the time to ask. If you do know, yeah, I have a saving faith, but I don't know about this work of the Holy Spirit that you're talking about, ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. Seek him. When I was 19 years old, I came to a place in my life where I was convinced I was saved. I had no question about my faith. And I know that I had experienced the work of the Holy Spirit. It had happened several years earlier. But there was something missing in my life. And so for about six months, 
when I prayed, I prayed, Lord, do a deeper work. The first time I experienced the, the work of the Holy Spirit, it came out of nowhere. I asked for nothing, and by God's grace, I received it. The, the next time I, I would say I had this unique experience, it came after months and months of seeking. Lord, do your work. Lately, I've been sensing I need to seek again. Because just like John, just like John, he received in the day of Pentecost, he received at the beginning of Revelation, he needed to receive again. And I don't want to walk into my 40s thinking that what happened in my 20s or my 30s or in my teens is enough. But I know the Lord hears our prayers. And I have great hope and faith for his work. And if you need prayer, reach out. You can email us. You can reach out on our Facebook, our Instagram. You can show up. We meet every Sunday morning at 1030. We meet throughout the weeks in small groups, including an online Zoom small group. Reach out because God is listening. And he is working and he is moving and he is filling people with his Holy Spirit. And he will come again and bring us to a place where we will experience the power and these living creatures won't matter and the 24 elders won't matter and the jasper and the rubies and the diamonds and the lightning and the rainbows of emerald won't matter because we will see him who sits on the throne. And we will know and we will see and we will be in him. I pray that you're blessed, you are comforted, you're challenged and encouraged. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of God. Amen.